business owners likely will have only one shot to sell a business. Most don't understand what drives value and how buyers look at a business. Until now. Welcome to the How to Sell a Business podcast, where every week we talk to the subject matter experts, advisors, and those around the deal table about how to sell at maximum value. Every business will go to sell one day. It's only a matter of when. We're glad you're here. The podcast starts now. One of the industries that business owners are most emotional about is the pet industry. And the funny thing is, it is a, I mean, the people that are passionate about animals are really passionate. And it's really unique to find a deal maker that specializes in just that, pet related businesses. Well, I found her and her name is Erin Fenstermaker of the Bird's Eye Advisory Group. And they have an investment bank and that's what they focus on 100% all pet related businesses from manufacturing to distribution. I don't believe they get too far into, to, um, into retail, but never, but they are into professional services. And so what we're seeing and what, and in our conversation, it was really interesting to visit about what's going on in the industry because it really tends to be recession proof and their practice, um, you know, they are, they're killing it and, and they are not seeing any kind of bumps in valuation. If anything, it's just the opposite. So today we had the opportunity to, Aaron and I visited about, you know, just what you need to do in order to prepare your business for sale. What are the, the metrics within the pet space that, that, um, really amplify value? So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aaron Fenstermaker of the Bird's Eye Advisory Group. Well, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ed. Well, I'm I'm delighted to have you. One of the the pet industry is always an industry everyone likes to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, regardless, anybody that has a pet knows that there's a big, big industry behind it. So, I guess where I'd want to start first is to talk a little bit about your practice and and the things that you're focusing on in the industry. Yeah. So, um. So I work for uh, Birds Advisory Group. We are a boutique investment bank specifically in the pet industry only. That's the only vertical that we uh, work in. So that's a little bit uh, unique in that respect. Um, and then within that, you know, the pet industry is a hundred plus billion dollar industry. And um, it, you know, it includes, you know, veterinary services and then let's say hard goods. We actually specialize uh in the, the hard good area, not services and veterinary. Um, so that, that kind of narrows down at least a, a little bit as to where, where we specialize. And my personal background, you know, I've been in the pet industry about 20 plus years in various capacities. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I happen to be a certified dog trainer, um, but I've also worked um, in both marketing and operations um, in a lot of different businesses, both pet and non-pet. And all of that uh, combined um, experience really uh, has has translated well in in the M and A world. Um, I happen to focus my, my work tends to focus on um, I create the marketing book. They call it the SIM, you know, the Confidential yeah. Information Memorandum. I put that together. Um, that is also the first level of due diligence that a banker um, is doing with their client. You know, we're looking under the hood to make sure that there are that everything looks good or if there are some issues right. that we address them prior to going to market. So, um, you know, I focus both on the marketing side on the front end and then on the back end with due diligence. Nice. Um, so nice. you know, that's the, to me, that, that that's where the details are. <laughs> a lot of the meat is in there. A lot of the problems might also be in there. Um, yeah, right. But it's where I feel the most comfortable. <laughs> well, well, that's awesome. Well, so, well, let's, since you're writing the Sims, let's talk a little bit about kind of the state of the industry mm-hmm. and and where where we're at and where we're going. Okay. 
Yeah, it's actually been a really, really interesting last few years. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has impacted most industries in one way or the other. In the pet industry, you know, you may have heard um, reports about the increase in pet adoption. All of those things are true. Um, but if you look at it a little bit more closely, while the, the pet industry was growing um, at a higher rate during the pandemic, it actually hurt the service segment of the business pretty dramatically. So people that had grooming businesses, you know, dog daycare, uh, pet sitting and dog walking, those businesses really took a hit during the pandemic. But conversely, the, the pet treats and, and hard goods and food all did phenomenally well. So while in general, the industry grew very well, you have to really kind of dig in to look at the different segments of it and see that there was some pain for a group of that of the industry. But the overall industry, you know, grew at about 10 percent, I believe, during that time frame. Um, and now we're pretty much post pandemic, knock on wood, and um, the, the services segments are recovering. So, um, so that is great to see that, um, you know, they're, they are um, back in business and, and doing well. Well, we, um, we had seen that there was a, a lot of consolidation, you know, after COVID. Is that, is, I mean, is that, a, is that a fair representation of, you know, especially on the service side? Um, is that what you guys saw or no? In, in some segments, yes. There are some service segments that are, I would say, easier to consolidate than others. So as an example, the veterinary space has seen a lot of consolidation. And for the most part, I think that's been a really good thing for the um, for that segment. Um, you're also starting to see consolidation within boarding, uh, the boarding market. Oh, okay. um, and again, uh, that's it's not as... Um, mature um, in terms of the level of consolidation as maybe the veterinary space, but boarding is probably the next frontier. Um, but then there's others like grooming and dog daycare and pet sitting and things like that that are going to be much harder to consolidate, if at all. Right. So um, we'll have to see how those um, how those segments um, yeah. fare over the next decade. <laughs> yeah. Well, what one of the things that really surprised me was seeing private equity getting into the vet space um and you know a number of of you know not only friends but also you know just here in the community you know pe was picking up picking up some practices which mm -hmm. which i don't want to say surprised me it just it, you you don't think of private equity moving <laughs> into into the vet space. So, well, well if you actually look, if you dig into what vets actually do and where there are economies of scale and extra profit margin to be gained that a single practice can't yeah. uh, take advantage of, you know, you think about, you know, buying power as an example, you know, so if you have a group of practices that are buying um, medical, medical related supplies and, and prescriptions and things, obviously they're buying power. Um, yeah. is greater if there's more of them together. The same sure. thing happens with um, marketing and advertising. You know, so if they need to do marketing and advertising, you know, typically vets aren't known for being the best marketers. Right. So it's much better if you've got a more polished organization that's leading that for a bunch of different practices. So if you actually look closely um, into what, what vets are, were doing, it, did, it made a lot of sense, you know, as yeah. long as the private equity firm had um, some of those yeah. capabilities, um, you know, it, as part of their their group. Right. Well, the um, the funny thing that I shouldn't say the funny thing, but they it was it's growing more alarming. And, and I don't know if this is true. You'd know more than more than I. But in that vet space, there's not a lot of of vets coming out of school to acquire you know, the, the sole practitioners. Are you seeing the same or am, am I wrong on that? Yeah. In fact, you know, one of the, the things that's, it's not actually very well known outside of the, the pet industry in general, but, um, you know, there aren't the number of vets coming out of vet school these days as there were previously and, and okay. definitely not enough to support the growth that we're seeing in the pet industry. And if you, if you think about what a vet does day in and day out, and you think about, you know, one of the areas that, that, um, is, is reaching a crisis state is really um, the mental health of, of uh, veterinarians because oh. they're seeing huge volumes of, of pets 
That's you know, and they're seeing them usually when they're not at their best. You know, in many cases, there's you know there there are sicknesses or accidents or or what have you. Um, you know, they're having to perform euthanasias on a regular basis. Those things take a toll on any human being, and um, you know, you, you take that 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 yeah. fact and then you multiply it by there's this huge surge of more clients coming in. It makes it very difficult to um, to be met these days and, sure. and stay healthy and happy. I I had no idea, and, and my my wife's a therapist, so it's mm-hmm. re- it's funny you say that because I, I I you know you would think I I would be attuned to to mm-hmm. to uh, you know those types of things, um, but yeah, no. it's really the convergence of a couple right. of you know factors you know uh, impacting in a negative way, and so I think about it a lot. You know when yeah. I go to the vet because um, I know how difficult, you know, on a, on a personal note, I have, um, I have been on a board for a shelter and, you know, so I know the, the, the day-to-day things that, that, that happened to 120 animals and they're gut-wrenching, <laughs> you know, and that essentially is a very similar um, experience for what a vet is going to see on a daily basis. And so you have to have a certain constitution to be able to do that and yeah. still maintain a good mental that, health. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. And, and again, so what's the, what's the solution? I mean, or do you, do you foresee a solution on how, how, the, how is, how is that going to correct itself? I mean, you, because you, you certainly people are going to continue to have pets, but you know, who's going to treat them? You know what I mean? Or how, I, you know, it's a great question. It's it's not an area that I happen to, yeah. where I would even say that I have expertise. I, I'm aware of it, but I don't know enough about the, you know, to me, it has to start on the the appeal of the veterinary practice in general. And, yeah. you know, whether it's how much income that they're making, because unlike a, a, a human doctor, they don't make the same um, financial return that, um, that a human doctor does. Right, right. So. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to translate then eventually, you know, prices are going to have to go up so that more people are more interested in becoming vets. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's kind of the obvious um, possible yeah. solution, but I would hope that there's other ones as well. I well, just don't happen to know what they would be. Well, and that may explain, you know, the, this, the, the sophistication of the private equity getting into that space because they recognize that they're, you know, the, the long play is that, you know, we're going to have to increase prices. We increase prices, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to increase profitability and therefore mm-hmm. increase valuation. And that's, that kind of takes me to where I was. My next question was, as it relates to value, you know, I, I it's really interesting about some of the profitability of, of pet related businesses, because again, I think a lot has to do with the, the emotion you know, like my dog. I mean, I love my dog and I, and I was always a tough guy. And I said, you know, I budgeted this much for that dog this year and we go over it and, you know, I'm, I'm not paying more than whatever, 500 bucks for the dog. And, and now, you know, he's, he's part of the family. I could, <laughs> I, I would pay. Yeah, that goes out the window because they are now your child. <laughs> right? that, that's exactly it. And so, and so as it relates to value, it these become you know and rightfully so you know they are some of the more profitable businesses that you see so anyway i i want to talk about you know if i know your practice you have kind of a a a broad you know a broad you know practice of who all you serve so i'm just kind of curious to know from a valuation standpoint you know are the multiples staying static or you know are we seeing a, a bump you know where where are we in 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 the value world well the i'm happy to say that the pet industry is is alive and well and, and thriving um from a valuation perspective i would say we've seen some of the highest multiples over the last five years i do think that right now um with the economy softening to some degree um you know, there there's less deal flow, so there's less people that are wanting to to take their chance, their shot now to to sell potentially. But if if you have a good company, there's always uh, going to be a buyer. Uh, right. It just there um, people are just falling all over themselves trying to get into the pet industry mm-hmm. uh, because it's 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 
almost considered recession proof and, right. you know, just keeps showing great returns year after year. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense that, that it's attractive to a lot of financial groups. Um, but in terms of, you know, the other thing to think about in value, you know, evaluation terms when it comes to the pet industry is there is there is quite a bit of difference based on the type of company that you are. So right. as an example, um, a hard goods company that sells, you know, beds and leashes and, and harnesses and things like that tends to trade in, in the lower range than a consumables company that is, you know, food or treats. So, um, so you know, depending on what product line that you chose right. to enter into, that's going to affect to some degree what your potential exit is going to be. The other thing that's also really important in our industry um, that affects valuation is whether you're a branded product or whether you're a private label product. Um, yeah. So um, a branded product is going to be higher valued than a private label product. So when we counsel different businesses about, you know, what we think their valuation is going to be, you know, people get a lot more excited about a branded business than they do a sure. private label business. So, um, you know, so they, they can make the decisions that they are going to make, but they just need to be aware of what the, uh, you know, what the, the impact might be. And then I also think, you know, another area to consider, you know, is your revenue size, because, you know, once you get past 20, 30, 40 million dollars, the multiples are going to go up as well because of the size, because of the sure. size of the business. So yeah. you can be a treats company today and be five million, and, and then you know there's another one that's fifty million. Well, that one's going to they're both treat companies, and maybe they have the same profitability, but at fifty million, they're going to get a higher multiple. So they're going to get a higher multiple. And that's where I, I want to poke a little bit on the types of buyers. Who who are the types of buyers at the at these different price points? Can you talk a yeah, little? Yeah, that's about a great that? question. So, um, so we we there, there very much are tiers, kind of tiers where different buyers come in. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so in in the pet industry, what we typically see, if you're under a couple of million dollars in revenue, there aren't going to be very many buyers for your business that are. Uh, a strategic buyer or a financial buyer. It's most likely going to have to be somebody that wants to run a business and will buy your business for that, um, you know, yeah. for that purpose. Uh -huh. um, once you start hitting about half a million to a million in EBITDA, uh -huh. um, that's when you're going to start potentially gaining some interest from some strategic buyers. Um, strategic buyers being those that are already in the industry and see some sort of advantage that they would have for, for buying you, whether it's um, you have a specific product they want, or maybe you have a customer set that they would like to also get into, um, or maybe it's the personnel, you know, wh whatever it happens to be. Sure. Um, but strategic buyers tend to start being interested at that level, but very few financial buyers get interested at that level. There are a few, you know, we, yeah. we know of some that might look at a business that's 500,000 to a million in EBITDA, but there's not very many. So, um, you know, if you want a really healthy pool of potential buyers, that really starts at about 2 million in EBITDA. Mm -hmm. And at that, at that level, um, there are a lot of both strategic and financial buyers that we could potentially, um, you know, show your business to, um, you know, at that rate. So you kind of have to go up those tiers to get, a, a, get more attention for your business. Yeah. So the, where are those buyers coming from? Are those national players, regional players? Where where do where do the 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 half a million and and up EBITDA buyers come from? Well, typically, you know, uh, if it's a strategic buyer, it's almost always a national business in the pet industry. Again, you know, mm -hmm. I happen in, with Bird's Eye Advisory Group, we focus on the hard goods uh, mm -hmm. and consumable yeah. space, so we're not talking about service businesses that are are tied to a, a specific, let's right. say, local area. So, you know, if I'm selling treats or, or collars or what have you, um, most of my potential buyers are, can be from anywhere. They could even be international, but more likely they're going to be a national, uh, uh, you know, a national company. Um, and then, you know, the, the financial buyers are, are, are generally going to be private equity firms. And those also can be from all over the country. So um, we're not. We aren't, um, when we go out to market with a potential business, it's almost always casting a national net and even an international one, depending on what they sell. 
Yeah. And, and, and that takes me to my next question on, um, and what's the best way? And, and again, this is a, this is a tough question, <laughs> but I'll ask it anyway. So on these different tiers, I mean, I know you guys have a really good success rate on the, on selling, but I mean, as, as an industry, as a whole, what, you know, at, the sub half million dollars in EBITDA. What's the likelihood they sell percentage wise? Because I mean, as a as a uh, you know, most businesses what eighty percent don't sell. Mm-hmm. That's the theoretical. Yeah, we, I mean, when I was when I went yeah, got my exit planning certification, I think they told me seventy percent, but it was remarkably yeah. high. Whatever, and not in a good way. <laughs> right, all right. So, so in the, in this industry, I mean, because my, my my next few questions is how to how to fix that, and so. I mean, what it, does that stand true? Like the smaller businesses, there's probably a seventy percent chance you're not going to sell, and as you move up, it, it, it well, improves. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, you know, I, I come from a consulting background also. So, I if I if I had a client that was half a million at EBITDA, usually they're at half a million EBITDA for a reason instead of at two million in EBITDA. You know, oh. whether it's not the right personnel, maybe their pricing is too low, you know, you know, it really depends. What are they doing incorrectly to not, um, you know, be be experiencing a higher growth rate? You know, so, so to me, if you're, if you're going to be that small in a, in the, in the, in the litter box that we play in, um, (laughs) to use an industry pun. In the litter box. um, That's great. You know, there's probably a problem that needs to be addressed or corrected in order for them to be more appealing. That doesn't mean that there isn't a potential buyer. Sure. The pool of buyers, again, is shrunk. And typically, at those levels, they're probably going to have to use a business broker. um, And, you know, does, does a business broker have a network of, contacts that have experience in these industries. I mean, um, it it really does. um, My uh, business partner at Birdseye will say, you know, that the pet industry is like the mafia. You know, it's it's very hard to get into. But once you're in it, you know, you don't want to leave. And so um, it's if you don't have experience in the pet industry, it's very difficult, you know, to come in and be successful on day one. Uh, yeah. running whatever the business is going to be. Um, it, it's uh, just in yeah. our experience. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, how do we increase? I, I, the first thing I would do is is look at what are you doing wrong? If you're under a half a million dollars and, and maybe you're growing, but maybe you're just, you don't have capital or something like that. Got to solve the things that aren't getting you to the higher, those higher tiers. You have to really look at your business from an objective way. I got it. So what, so what you're, what I hear you saying is that, your first step in making your business more saleable is 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 critical mass that you you have to be a a, a bigger business that's going to attract a, a larger pool of buyers. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the, the reason why that's important, because I always was like, well, why? Why does that matter? Well, because if you think about it, the the cost of a due diligence process that is going to that a buyer is going to undertake that's a strategic buyer, a national company, um, you know, it's going to cost on the low end half a million dollars and, you know, on the high end, a million to a million and a half dollars. So why would they spend that on a company that is that small? You know, yeah. so they need economies of scale to make that investment in the due diligence make sense. Yeah. Well, and and that's a great segue. So let's, and by the way, swinging back to uh, in the litter box, that would be a great, <laughs> that would be a great podcast. <laughs> There probably is one already. Right. Or there, the, there will be tomorrow. <laughs> in the litter box. Ah. So, uh, so you were talking about due diligence. How how do sellers in this industry survive due diligence? What what <laughs> I mean, you because I, I'm certain you, you're like you said you you did consult you do consulting in this. So yep. so how are you consulting to to these types of sellers saying all right. You know, everybody says you got to have clean books and records, but but specifically in this industry, what are, where where should somebody spend some time looking? Well, the, I would say the number one pain point for any uh, due diligence process is the financial due diligence, and mm-hmm. so it's their accounting um, and record keeping. And I can line up ten business owners in this industry and say, "Do you think you have adequate bookkeeping and accounting?" And all ten will say yes. 
and probably the bulk of them aren't correct. Mm. You know, so so the, this is and where where I think that changes is if you have a CFO on staff, whether it's a part time CFO or a full time CFO, that's when we start to see a lot more legitimacy in that in the answer that yes, they have proper accounting. Typically, because a CFO, not only do they have accounting background, so even if they aren't doing all of the accounting function, they can oversee what the accountant is doing, but they can also do budgeting and projections and and do cash flow models and things like that. Things that really are um, necessary for a a business that's moving out of a small, being small into a medium-sized business. I would love if every company that we ever sold had a CFO or at least a part-time CFO, a minimum of 12 to 20 more, 24 months before they sold because everybody thinks that they are adequately prepared and the bulk of them are not. And they don't know what they don't know. Um, and so that's the hard part is, is trying to convince right. a business owner that the way that they've been doing it, while it might be fine for them filing their taxes, is not going to be going to withstand a, a due diligence process. Yeah. So is are there any particular areas of of the due diligence that that you run into you know that you run into friction um you know i guess a couple of a couple of areas come to mind <laughs> um, <laughs> um, i have horror stories from things <laughs> that we have encountered over <laughs> um over the years which is why i'm so adamant that this needs you know needs to be addressed but I think, you know, the, the first thing that we ask, you know, is are you able to um, to run reports for a minimum of, of a three-year look-back period? Okay. Okay. And do those reports allow you to slice and dice um, revenue segments? So if I have three or four different areas of revenue, can I break them out in those ways? Can I also break out the cost of goods for those different revenue segments? And can I also do it? on a product basis, a single okay. product basis. You've got to have reporting that does that. And you've got to be able to look backwards at it. I got it. Um, the other thing that's also important in that three-year look-back period is is um, you need consistency across across the years in how you're booking things. So as an example, if you had two different accountants during that time and one of them is putting marketing expenses and COGS and the other one is putting it in operating expenses, well, then when somebody that looks at the three-year period, it's not consistent right. because they're not following consistent principles. So you really want right. that to be all resolved and clean before you ever go to market. Um, and usually for a period of three years or more is the ideal uh, look back. And then um, conversely, um, projections. If you've never done projections before, which many of our clients when we took them to market, have never done. But that, frankly, is very risky because the 12-month look-forward period is mm-hmm. what most buyers are buying. Right. And so, and usually our sale processes take about six months. So, you know, the first six months of your projections, you better be hitting those targets throughout the process. Otherwise, you know, the wheels may fall off the process because you're not, you are not um, standing up to the numbers that you put out. So do you really want to make the biggest financial transaction of your life on numbers that you have zero experience in yeah. predicting because you've never done it before? You really need to have that sort of, um, of uh, experience a, prior to going to market. Yeah, I mean, that. I mean, you're from a valuation standpoint, that's certainly, you know, the predictability of what's what's coming is is certainly important. And, and that's really interesting that you bring that up because I, 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 out of all these podcasts, no one has, has said you need to be able to, you know, forecast what, what you're going to do. I know everybody asks for it, but as far as a, you know, this is kind of mandatory for, for the likelihood of you selling and the reliability of you as a business owner and, you know, as an operator of the business that you have. Yeah, it shows how much you know your business. If you can't predict the future, at least in short-term intervals, to a reasonably accurate degree, then why should they believe any of the the things that you tell them? That's really what your 
your forecast is saying. And if you've never done it before, I mean, what's the right. likelihood you're going to hit a bullseye on the first go around? Right. I mean, no, no, um, not that high. Right, and that that's funny because again, by by you being able to to understand or make your business more predictable the the less risk and the higher value so that that that's a exactly i mean so if you you know as an example we we just closed a transaction about a week ago that took a lot longer than we um normally we have about a six month process this took almost 12 months yeah. and i can tell you every single month as the deal was going on we're like, you've got to get your numbers or you've got to be pretty darn close and fortunately for them and for us they, you know, while they had ups and downs, they were pretty darn spot on with where their okay. forecast was. So fortunately, that did not derail the process, but that can, and it has derailed other processes yeah. um, in the past. Do you see uh, buyers often retrading? Um, oh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, but but my question is, do they retrade based on a month or they retrade because, you know, you missed, you missed it at based on the year and you know like- that's a great question so um you know our, our goal obviously on the on the banking side you know is we never want to retrade and what there are a number of safeguards that you can do to mitigate the likelihood of that um as an example in the deal size that we're typically doing um you know we often recommend a sell side q of e a quality of earnings sure be done um that can typically cost 50 Ish, let's say on average, yeah. fifty thousand, maybe, maybe a little bit sure. more for depending on who the firm is. And you know, we get a lot of um, business owners that hem and haw about wanting to pay that in advance. But if their books are suspect and they want a premium valuation, you know, as in, you know, I'll, I can even give a, a generic example. We we spoke to a client who was doing about sixteen million dollars in revenue in the direct direct consumer space. And um, we recommended that he do a quality of earnings because he was looking for a premium multiple. But we, we had some suspicions that his books just weren't gonna, mm. gonna, going to um, do well under scrutiny. And so we said, let's mitigate that. Let's spend 50 grand, find out what areas that are, pro- are going to be the problem points and point them out in advance and fix them if possible. But at least bring nice. them to the attention before indications of interest and letters of intent get written because that nobody wants to, to um, have the retrading conversation. And a lot right. of times those things are, are the retrades are preventable. Um, if you are transparent yeah. um, about whatever works that there might be in your business, I'm a master at putting lipstick on a pig as my mom would say. And in doing that in the marketing document, I can turn any negative into a positive if I know about it, right. you know, and, and I can nice. position it accordingly but those things that are found out during the due diligence process if it's one maybe you'll be okay but you get a few and then maybe you miss your numbers i mean it really it kind of depends obviously on each scenario um because they can be unique but um you don't want to have any surprises you want to be a hundred percent transparent so that you can control the narrative and so that's what we recommend you know, to any uh, of our right. clients and um, in order to mitigate the retrade. And then if yeah. the company size and, and you know, end result we think is going to be of a certain size, we say you can right. buy the security or the insurance policy by doing a sell side QV. So uh, how often are you seeing, you, you know, pre-sale QVs being done? Um, I would say pretty regularly. Oh, nice. If you are... Form, um, I, I'm gonna. This is arbitrary, but yeah, yeah. If, if the deal is, you know, more than three, four, five million dollars in EBITDA, um, it's not uncommon. It also depends too on what is the, what has the, the financial history been of the company in terms right. of have they had a CFO in place for the last five years? Well, then you probably don't need to do one. Um, or yeah. maybe you need to do one if you are um, a two division company and you're selling one of the divisions. Maybe that. That would be a reason, you know, to do one. Um, so, you know, size can dictate it. The, the lack of financial oversight for the history of the company can dictate it. Um, if the complexity of a deal, you know, if it's it happens to be one division out of two, you know, those kind of things can really, um, high, you know, it, it would be scenarios where a banker would, might recommend it. 
Um, right. We don't see it all the time, or um, but we know that the, the buyer most is going to do one in those scenarios. So yeah. um, if That's there's any possibility that they're going to find something negative, we think it's the best insurance policy against that. I mean, spend fifty thousand yeah. so you don't get a three million or four or five million dollar haircut on a retrade at the end. To me, it's a no brainer. Yeah, um, but you know, it's funny you said. So I had uh, Elliot Holland from Guardian Due Diligence, and the, and they're a Q of E company out of Boston, I think. And and anyway, we were talking about that, and I was hoping that that at some point we get enough empirical evidence where there is a a case study that can be done that you can quantify that you know what if you do the Q of E, you know this you, either A you're gonna you're gonna pick up an extra turn on your multiple mm -hmm. you know something something like that where where now where now you have other than you know my experience is that you know if you do a Q of E chances you increase your chances of selling and the mm -hmm. and and the seller's like. Well, I'm not spending fifty grand unless you got something. Yeah, you, you got to come with me with more than that. And mm -hmm. so, I so, me, I would love the same things because yeah. you know we just see the we see the fallout if they don't do one. Amen. And you know we also try to, you know, in, in some cases we've been we've been fortunate enough that and successful enough in in some of the the work that we've done that yeah you know we're, we're going to walk away from a potential sale transaction before we take the client on, if we think that there's any possibility that the books aren't going to withstand uh, scrutiny and the seller is not willing to do the additional uh, investment in it. Because, you know, we don't we don't want to take the risk that we're not going to make our, our commission. So, um, you know, we, yeah. we have to be smart about it. And, you know, would I bid on this business knowing that they haven't done this work? Hmm. You know, it it really, you know, makes makes you pause. Um, right, right, and people fail to understand the reputational harm of bringing bringing a business to market that you know is, is isn't not ready. To, you know, <laughs> it's not ready, or it's it's just unrealistic. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. So. So I guess with the time we have, you know, I, I guess I'm looking for where what. You know the podcast is how to how to sell a business, and mm. I'm just curious to know, you know, some high level guidance that you might be able to say. You know, this is these are these are the things that in this industry that are specific to the industry that you have to do and you have to to get your arms around. Well, I know we've talked about the financials, understanding the financials, but what other what other areas should a business owner start to focus on? Prior to going to market, um, yeah. well, that's a good question. You know, the it, I'm going to approach it maybe from a little bit of a different perspective. Okay. You know, the, the when I look at the companies that we've sold that have been that have had successful outcomes, I look at what are the unique threads that I have seen about them that made those um, transactions yeah. successful, and. The first thing that I would say, just kind of from a generic perspective, and this really kind of addresses um, uh, competition in a, in a sense as well, is, you know, most of the people that have successful outcomes are successful because they're really passionate about whatever product that they're selling. They have a really good story about why they got into it and why they're doing it, why they believe it. And they've done a really good job of conveying that story. And you have to remember the pet industry, is highly personal. We're not selling, right. you know, we're not selling, you know, uh, scissors or <laughs> staplers yeah. or something. We're selling products for the equivalent of four-legged children. And so people want to develop a relationship with the providers of their goods, the goods mm -hmm. and services, because these creatures are so incredibly important to them. So having a really strong connection with your who your end consumer. Because of this, you know your passion and how you got into it, how you messaged it, all of those things, those are automatically going to resonate with um, a, a sure. the pet owner out there because yeah. they're going to go, oh my, these people care the way I care, you know. So those you start with that magic that you don't need to look around and see what's the competition doing, you know. I'm like, sure. Who cares? You know, it really doesn't matter as long as. You know, you you have the right product and message, and you're focusing 
on how that how you resonate with your consumers. You know, so so the sellers that I think about, you know, were really focused on who who they were working who they were working for. You know, um, and then you know when it comes from an actual nuts and bolts perspective, you know, when they actually came to the table, I would say that all of them were also they. You know, I've used the, the saying before with clients, you know, if you were going to be in college and take a test, would you prepare? You know, hopefully, most likely. I, I know I was very, you know, I wanted straight A's. I was going to practice. I was going to study well in right. advance. So you have to think about the sale of your business kind of like the biggest test of your life. And would you show up to the biggest test of your life not having prepared? And people just think that they decide one day they want to sell, so they must be ready. <laughs> wait, wait a second, you know. It's they haven't app. even really looked at their business from a, um, a seller's, from, from that angle, you know, where yeah. is my business attractive? And could I withstand a, um, a due diligence process? Yeah. And you know, most most buy, or most sellers, unfortunately, don't do that kind of homework. So the ones that have been successful are the ones that have decided, OK, I'm going to sell in probably two to three years. And they start making all of the right um, preparatory steps. They meet with their financial advisor, talk about, you know, tax structures and, and you know, potential, um, you know, deal points that may be important to them. You know, they start, um, if they don't have a CFO, they start working with a CFO and they start doing projections. And, you know, so they start doing the, the work right. to prepare <laughs> sure. for that giant test that they're going to take. You know, they're getting all of their documents in, in a row. They're writing down processes for everything in their business. Um, so the people that come to the table prepared in that sense yeah. are going to have the better outcomes. Than those that have done zero planning and simply thought, well, my my business is good, so um, you know, yeah. I pay me yeah. a high multiple. Sure, no, no. <laughs> you know, um, and also to the other side is, is most sellers, I think, because they may have had a lot of success in what they're doing, doesn't mean they're automatically going to be successful in selling their business. <laughs> no. They yeah. have blind spots uh, about that, and so this is where I highly recommend developing relationships with, you know, several investment bankers to get some, some advice around, particularly those that have experience in your industry, and start talking to them two or three years before they uh, are, are ready to go to market. So they can start getting an idea about what, what are the areas that they might need to shore up before they come to market. So, you know, planning in advance to me is really, um, is, is one of the markers of a successful exit. Um, you know, and I use the test example. It's the biggest test of your life. Are you gonna Are you gonna study, <laughs> or are you just right. gonna show up? Sure. Yeah. And those that study tend to do better. Yeah. Well, I I, I agree. And in fact, I can tell you, it, over you know we've done twenty two hundred deals, mm -hmm. and the the common thread, and you know eighty seven percent that if you do any value work. And I mean, any value work that you now understand the value and you understand what drives the value, you're going to sell because now, you know, like, like you just said, you just, you now understand what, uh, how a buyer is looking at it, how a financing institution is going to look at it. And so you're more prepared, but, but I want to circle back to your practice um, mm -hmm. because I know you do a lot of planning. So can, so can you talk um I guess how how your practice works and you know, the consultative side of the practice because I know I know you do deals, but mm -hmm. the people that hear this they're going to say, all right, well, how do I how do I work with her? And can you talk a little bit about you know just the practice in general and who who's right for you and who's not? Right. So um, sure. So I'm a certified exit planning advisor, so I have my credential in that. And so, um, yes, I spend a lot of my time uh, working on uh, mostly sell-side transactions, but we do some buy-side work as well. Uh, but in my free time, <laughs> you know, I want to talk to business owners, particularly in the pet industry, that, because that's where we mm -hmm. focus, that are planning an exit, let's say in three years or less. And we have um, a program that we call uh, the Business Exit Boot Camp. 
Okay. And um, that is a, uh, a process where um, it's, it's um, a mini uh, due diligence exercise and it's a, a mini financial uh, preparatory exercise where, as an example, we I ask uh, a business owner to provide me the last three years of historical financials, three years of projected financials, and uh, provide any adjustments to EBITDA. And the, the ease or dis-ease that that whole process um, takes just in that doing that preparatory work tells me a lot about how they, where they are financial in their financial preparation. Um, then the, uh, the the rest of the boot camp is a series of interviews where I I um, ask things from a, a buyer's perspective. So we we talk about you know how long they've been in business, where they are, what's their brand, why. Um, you know, are they, how are their gross margins? You know, how profitable are, you know, I, I ask all of these things. And then there's another series of, of questions and interviews that's around the due diligence side. So we do a deep dive into your HR practices and what product development do you have mm -hmm. coming and, um, you know, who are your key employees and, you know, um, how, um, uh, you know, are, are you protected yeah. um, you know, in terms of IP related things, all of, you know, we ask all of these questions that would essentially be part of a due diligence practice, uh, due diligence okay. process. And then we provide a score as to where they are on that today. And we provide a valuation guidance. So we say, okay, we think that your business today is worth X and that your valuation range would be between, you know, th th these parameters. And then we give a series of recommendations. These are all of the things that we would recommend that you do to move yourself up that sliding scale to the higher yes. valuation. And yeah. some of them are more short term and quicker and easier to do, and others are much more complex and harder to do. Sure. Um, and then obviously the owner is is open to doing as many of them as they wish to do. But essentially it gives them a book that says, this is what I need to do to um, improve my valuation. and if I choose not to do any of these things, I at least know that, yes, they may uh, lower my valuation, but I'm making that decision from an educated sure. uh, perspective versus right. being surprised about it, you know, nice. by just coming up to the selling table and not knowing. So it's nice. a hugely advantageous process to go through. We recommend every everyone go through it before they sell. Nice. Um, we obviously can't force anyone to do it. But um, but to me, it's a roadmap on how to run your business. If you want to add value and make your business more valuable, follow this roadmap and yeah. you will get there. Nice. Um, and then obviously from there, depending on what the guidance is, yeah, we can, uh, if we have connections in some of the areas that they need um, assistance, we obviously uh, are happy to make those recommendations um, because okay. we are very industry specific. We, um, we do know a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, you know, I recommend it for everyone. And it's hugely, um, I mean, it, it, I love these processes because I love to learn, you know, what drove somebody to create the business that they did. Right. Um, and also nice. it's, it's, it's fantastic to be able to give them some really good um, information about how to do better. Um, you know, nice. that they may not yeah. you know, have looked at their business from this perspective. Um, it's, it's so valuable. And it, that, it doesn't cost that much. Yeah. You know, for what you get. So, um, you know, I recommend every every business owner go, whether it's you know through myself in the pet industry or through somebody else um, that that is a SEPA. Um, it's just a highly valuable exercise. If you yeah. want to plan for your exit, <laughs> nice. um, you know, do do an equivalent of a, a business as an exit boot camp. You know, a couple years in advance, and you will be a lot nice. smarter when you get to the selling table. Nice. Well, after I think you'll be close to my 90th episode. So mm -hmm. I and I ask this of every every guest that's on and and that question is, you know, what advice would you give to the listeners that would have the most immediate impact on the business? And I think I know what your answer is going to be, but nevertheless, I'm still asking the question. <laughs> well, I would <laughs> it's going to be around the financials. Um I hate to say it because it's not that exciting and sexy, but it's it's what I see over and over again. Yeah. Um, you know, my my recommendations are if you are going to go to market and you do not have a CFO on staff, 
at least do uh, find a part-time CFO. There's a lot of uh, programs out there that yeah. have a fractional CFOs. I highly recommend getting one at least 12 months before you sell okay. to start organizing your financials and finding any potential holes that there are to start doing nice. projections. Um, you know, it's an investment, but you will, it will more than pay for itself by um, having a higher valuation. Nice. Um, and, and assume even if your bookkeeping and accounting has been fine for you all of these years, I also would add there, uh, make sure that you identify an accounting team that has um, M&A advisory experience. That's a good point. Uh, mm -hmm. Because um, if you are at least $2 million in EBITDA um, and are expecting a premium valuation, um, you're going to, you know, you wouldn't want to show up at a gunfight with a water gun. You know, <laughs> right. you want to have some, if somebody else is doing a quality of earnings, accounting quality of earnings on your business, you want to have somebody that's representing you yeah. with the same credentials and same abilities. So identifying a practice, if you work with a small accounting firm now, I would I would plan 18 months in advance moving to a medium-sized accounting firm that has M&A um, experience. Um, on that, it's going to cost you more, but it's absolutely the right move. Oh, good, good advice. So what's the best way we can connect with you? Well, um, you can go to uh, birdseyeadvisory.com. Um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I, we don't do the, the Facebook. And, frankly, we're, we are fortunate that... that um, you don't have to. We don't have to. <laughs> right. um, and, um, and plus, we're so busy that we, we don't have time to do it. Um, nice. But I would say LinkedIn or reaching out through uh, Bird's Eye Advisory is probably the best um, okay. way to find me. Okay, and and I will I will put a link. I'm I'm I know I I saw on your website the link to the boot camp. I will mm -hmm. I, I will make sure that there's a link to that in the show notes. Please. So, Aaron, thank you for for your time. Uh, I learned I learned a lot, and I'm certain our guests did too. So thanks for coming on coming on and hanging out. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm glad I could I could make it. And um, the pet industry is the best industry in the world. So. <laughs> If Clearly. you can work in it, you are a, a lucky person. Uh, it, I, I, I can sense the passion, and and I, like I said, I, I it, it is certainly a, a an, an industry that is not going away. And so, no, it is not. In fact, I'm, usually my pets will on most uh, on most meetings <laughs> that I have, at least one of them will typically show up. <laughs> well, I'm surprised it, we've got a whole meeting without <laughs> any of my pets coming. <laughs> Well, the, the funny thing is, so Dodger, my my uh, my black lab. Normally, when when a squirrel, you know, I'm at my office, but at, if I'm in my home office, if a squirrel infiltrates the perimeter, all, all, all hell breaks loose, and 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 that's when the editor has to to work on it. So, well, same with my uh, when my dog had if the mailman comes. I mean, it's yeah. all over. You would think game, I'm a game, game on. happening over here. Oh, right on. Well, again, thank you so much for 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 being on and and uh, I look forward to when we next visit. Likewise. Thanks for having me and I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on the How to Sell Your Business podcast. If you want more episodes packed with strategies to help sell your business for the maximum value, visit howtosellabusinesspodcast.com for tips and best practices to make your exit life-changing. Better yet, subscribe now so you never miss future episodes. This program is copyrighted by MISO Inc. All rights reserved.